Hi, this is Karen Allen from Animal House and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you're listening to the Claws Choir. Welcome to the latest episode of The Claws Corner. Today's guest is an author, screenwriter, technical consultant, production assistant, film actor, stuntman, basketball consultant, and website columnist. His most recent book, Purple Fury, Rumbling Window Warriors, talks about his crazy adventures doing double duty in production, as well as being cast as the Purple Fury, and the punk that rumbles with the Warriors in the now iconic bathroom brawl scene. He also discusses working with Tommy Lee Jones, Shaquille O'Neal, William Friedkin, and many, many more. So what the hell am I waiting for? Please welcome the Renaissance man himself, Mr. Rob Ryder. Rob, how the hell are you? I'm well. How are you, Rich? I am doing great. Thank you very much for being on the show. I met you first, I want to say 2015. It was the Coney Island reunion for, with all the Warriors. And then I saw you at the Chiller convention maybe a couple years ago, and I was talking about having you on the show. You said, I'm coming out with a book soon. If you don't mind waiting, I'm so glad I waited because I read that book. You, I paid you the money you sent to me. You signed it. I loved it. It's just a great, fast read with so many interesting stories. So let's get right to it. Yeah, well, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. All right, so what I like about the book is that it just it, it goes from story to story. Sometimes... It won't even be in order. Just like, I got to talk about this right now. And I love that. Then you go back to something else. So the book literally starts right off with a bang. So I want to start there. Who and why did John Stark, who's the production manager, want you to buy an entire city block so you could blow up a car? Yeah, well, you know, when you do a huge stunt like that, blowing up a car in the middle of a city, in this case, we were out in Brooklyn for this, you got to deal with all the neighbors. You got to deal with, um, the shop owners, the city, the cops, the fire department, everybody. Um, and it was pretty much almost my first day on the Warriors where I was given the assignment, just go out to Brooklyn, find a block, secure all the neighbors, get their permission to do it, get everyone to sign off. And that's that. And I just went, oh, my God. Oh, my God. So I headed out there with the Teamster who I thought was going to be kind of empathetic to my cause. And he, of course, just said, man, you are really screwed. <laughs> not quite using that language. Um, so anyway, I got out there, tried my best, and, and turned it over to uh, Alex Ho, who is one of the location managers. And he ended up securing that exact location. Yeah, now I'm guessing that that's for the, uh, the orphan scene. That's right, yeah. yeah. So people, I'm sure everybody's watching this saw the Warriors. So the orphans, they rumble with them. The car blows up. What I liked about this story was that when you were attempting to buy it off, I guess a couple of the um, stores found out that you were offering $100 each. And the other one's like, hey, I want $200. And they were actually threatened, threatening to sue. <laughs> there was a big a bidding war going on between the store owners. Yeah, that's right. That was actually out in Coney Island on the boardwalk. Ah, okay. Um, you know, the movie was supposed to open during the daytime mm -hmm. with the warriors kind of gathering on the boardwalk and talking about this big um, conclave that was going on up in the Bronx and they were going to go up there. And um, so we started shooting that scene and Walter Hill, the director, mm -hmm. decided he wanted to do a long tracking shot 
And a location manager comes running up to me, hands me a whole bunch of hundred dollar bills and says, you got to buy these next six storefronts. Um, talk to the owners, make sure that it's cool. So yeah, you're right. I started doing it, getting them to sign a release, hundred bucks each for six hours. By the time I got to the last couple, they they knew what was up. So they're like, man, we want more. We want 150. And I'm like, oh, geez. So I only had hundred dollar bills. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you each 200 bucks. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> so I paid them off. They signed the release. We got the shot we wanted. The other store owners heard about it, me overpaying these last two guys. So they came up to me and were giving me all sorts of grief. We're going to sue Paramount. Paramount was owned at the time by Gulf and Western, which is just about the biggest oil company in the world. And I just said, man, you guys are going to sue Gulf and Western, right? Good luck with that. I got to get to the Bronx. That's hilarious. Now, isn't it true when you said, well, how the hell am I going to do this? They basically said, you'll find a way. Just they put you, gave you some money and said, just do it. They didn't tell you, give you any kind of ideas of how to get the, how to get them to buy this and how to sell them off or buy them off. I mean, did they, did they even help you out that they just gave you the money and said, make it happen. Make it happen. So much of movie production work is like that, you know, especially working locations, but just about any job. Yeah. Someone will just say to you, get this done. And you spend a moment and you go, well, how do I do this and that? And, and usually the answer is figure it out. Mm -hmm. And you got to be quick on your feet. You got to be smart and you got to figure it out. Right. Well, I know you had many job titles at the end of the movie after it was all done, said and done. What was your first job title on the Warriors? Was it location scout? No, I got hired as a production assistant. Production assistant. Okay. 50 bucks a day by this production manager I had worked with previously. And um, he knew I was pretty sharp. And within a couple of days, he bumped me up to location scout. Mm -hmm. Same salary, 50 bucks a day. But it freed me up from a lot of grunt work. And I got to roam all over the city looking for all sorts of stuff. I guess my biggest success story on the Warriors was finding where they ultimately do the conclave um, where, um, you know, all the action took place, the, all the gangs gathered and uh, the guy gets shot and it put the whole plot and story in motion out of that. So I found that it was supposed to be set in the Bronx, looked all over the Bronx. And then I remembered a spot in Riverside Park on the west side of Manhattan. So we ended up shooting it there. It worked out great. Yeah. Well, actually, I want to talk about that because that, that's another interesting story in the book. We're talking about the opening scene with Cyrus. All the gangs meet there in the conclave. So um, you mentioned uh, a guy, his name is Craig Baxley, and he wrote a book called Driven. It was right. great because I was listening to that on Audible while I was reading your book. It was a great companion piece. Uh -huh. So uh, for well, I want to add, talk to you about him and that scene for a minute since you mentioned it because he was the stunt coordinator and he was the one that took the fall for Cyrus. That's right. And yeah, he, he actually, yeah, they, they looked for a black stunt man to do that and uh, they couldn't turn someone up. So Craig decided he was going to take that fall and he did a little bit of that blackface thing and yeah. he made it happen. Yeah. I want to talk about that same spot but a different time. The year was 1967. Brings it back to Blues Project, John Lee Hooker riots, 
Fun time. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, you know, when we were going to shoot that riot scene, when Cyrus got shot, it brought me back to a night when I was still in high school. My, myself and a couple of high school friends from New Jersey, we crossed over the GW Bridge and went to a, a concert in Central Park. And um, yeah, it was John Lee Hooker, the, the Blues Project, fantastic concert. Concert ended, we were walking out of the park. It was late at night by now. And we heard all this commotion over by Fifth Avenue. So we headed that way. And um, we joined what was a protest of maybe two, 300 people on Fifth Avenue outside of Nelson Rockefeller, Governor Nelson Rockefeller's apartment. And they were protesting the Vietnam War and all sorts of other capitalist BS. And um, so we joined the crowd, right? And there were literally hundreds and hundreds of us who joined this crowd because it was where the action was. Yeah. And we started chanting and yelling. We didn't know what the heck we were doing. Um, and then suddenly there come the cops and they marched us. They essentially herded us down Fifth Avenue towards Central Park South. Um, and the Plaza Hotel there. And we reached there and the plot, the cops headed us down across Central Park South now. And suddenly they were barring our way there and we headed down Sixth Avenue and the crowd got out of control. Started smashing windows, yelling and screaming and boom, the cops arrived in bus loads and van loads, cut us off and suddenly I heard nightsticks on heads and it turned into a full-scale riot. Wow. And there were people from the front line running past us now, tear gas going off, running past us, bleeding heads. And my friends and I looked at each other like, oh my God. And I'll tell you, if you've never been in a riot, don't be, because it is electric. It'll scare the crap out of you. You got to keep your head on a swivel and look for the safest way out. So we sprinted back up Sixth Avenue, went sprinting across, I mean, flat out sprinting across Central Park South, leapt over that wall there and went tumbled down this big hill, hid under some bushes and just looked at each other like, whoa, what did we just miss? Anyway, that was my riot experience. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Walter Hill did a good job on the conclave, but it didn't quite capture that. Well, I was going to say, I never planned on being involved in a riot, but after hearing that story, I definitely won't plan on being in a riot. So thank oh, you very much for that warning. Is that that event happening to you in 1967, did that sort of trigger you to say, you know what, this would make a good scene for the Cyrus shot? Did that, did that help you with the location? Not especially, no. Oh. I just, uh, you know, I, I just knew we needed a space that had that kind of feeling of like an old Roman forum or something like that. And I'll tell you what, I mean, I just lucked into it, kind of remembering this spot. Um, God, what was it called? I forget, it's in Riverside Park there though. Okay. And um, it just worked out great. When I first showed pictures of it, Polaroids to Walter Hill, he looked at it and said, ah, it looks a little small. And I knew it was going to be perfect. And it's rare that you want to insist on something with the director. But 
I just said, listen, Walter, this thing is going to rock. It's going to, it's a perfect size. You're going to be able to fill it up. It'll feel like it's overflowing, but it's big. And, and it worked out great. Well, I'm glad you brought up Polaroids because I want to bring this up because I found it very interesting. And I'm going to be interviewing Tina Cole from My Three Sons. And she was talking about that too. She said, I wish I had all these Polaroids because you mentioned it looking for the bathroom scene for the punk in the Warriors fight. That's how continuity was done because you would take Polaroids and say, okay, wait, you look like this at this time. Let's make it. And technology has definitely come a long way since 1978, 1979. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, back then, everything was Polaroids. Working locations, that's all we had. You know, we'd pull out the camera, you'd shoot like a whole bunch in a row to get the vista if it was a big broad shot. Yeah. Um, you do that thing, waving them in the air, dry them off, you know, get to location, show them to the director, and he would say, nah, I don't like it. Go, <laughs> go out again. And then when you get in front of the camera, the makeup, wardrobe, hair, all those people were using Polaroid cameras. And they would like, you know, when I was playing a baseball fury, as soon as um, I was actually replacing a stuntman in that, and um, the guy was referring to the Polaroid of this guy, Steve Chambers, who is a legitimate stuntman, and um, referring to that and going, okay, here's the purple and black, black uh, circle around the eye. And um, so he made me up to match Steve Chambers. And then he took Polaroids of that. And then they keep a record of that just to make sure that um, all the continuity is together. Well, what actually happened to him? Why was, why was, why did you have to replace him? What did he do? Did he break something? Yeah, they started the Fury scenes um, running um, through the streets on the Upper West Side. And uh, they actually hired all these New York City stuntmen, and half of them were all busted up and kind of older, mm -hmm. and they couldn't run very well. They could fight like crazy, but they couldn't run very well. So, these guys were running and Steve Chambers, I don't know, I think he's leaping down some stairs or something and he busted up his knee. And next thing I know, Walter Hill, I get word, Walter wants you on location. So I show up where they're shooting the Furies and he says, uh, and he's in a really pissed off mood at this point because things are going wrong all sorts of ways. And he said, look, I want you in my movie. You're going to, you're going to replace this guy and be a baseball fury so what do you say no to the director Not at and all. i said okay man that's we're on i said when do i start and he said tomorrow night yeah well i had a question about that because how does one actually become a stuntman it's not like there i mean maybe there is a school for it. like how do you practice to learn to break the fall correctly I mean, is it just doing it over and over again and the, the better you get at it yeah, you know, stunt work is one of those things where um, it's often a family affair. Yeah. Where a stuntman like Baxley comes out of a family of stuntmen and his, his cousin Gary was a stuntman in the Warriors. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it comes through the generations. But there are schools and there are ways of learning. And you, and also a lot of us learned on the job. Yeah. Um, and that's not a good way to learn how to do stunts. Like there was uh, earlier on, Walter asked me, he 
essentially told me, he said, I want you to fall down these subway stairs. Ajax is going to kick you in the chest and you fall backwards. And I looked down the stairs and it's like concrete and steel mm -hmm. and went on forever. And I said, no way. And he just looked at me and said, pussy. <laughs> and he forgave me for that because he knew I was being sensible. But next time you're in, you're on top of a set of stairs, look down and imagine falling down backwards, not knowing what you're doing. I mean, even if you know how to fall downstairs, this stuff is dangerous. And I, there's no way I could get taken out that early in the movie. So I said no to Walter and he forgave me and ended up making me a fury. Called you a pussy and forgave you. <laughs> I love it. Well, I saw the picture. I'm, I'm friends with you on Facebook, and I also have seen that scene thousands of times. That was, I'm guessing, you were going to be the cop where Ajax threw the bat, and you were going to fall down the stairs. So, yeah, that's a tough set of stairs to fall down, especially when you don't have any experience as a stuntman. I would be saying no as well. <laughs> don't blame yeah. me at all. <laughs> So you mentioned the the the, the Furies and the, and the Warriors running. Who were the uh, New York Roadrunners? Yeah, the Roadrunners were um, a group. Of, it was a track club in New York. One of the producers, Frank Marshall, is a big track guy. And when these old stuntmen weren't doing a good job running, Frank said, "Hey, you know, let's get some guys from the New York Roadrunners, whatever they were." And so. He, they made them a bunch of furies for a couple of nights for some of the running scenes. Mm -hmm. And by the time I joined the furies, we're back to the original guys who were going to do the fighting. But we did probably two or three nights of some serious running in Riverside Park. And, you know, I don't know, sometimes Walter felt like he was deliberately just beating the crap not out of us stunt guys as much as out of the warriors themselves, like really pushing these guys and seeing what they can handle. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, they handle it well. They got themselves in really good running shape, fighting shape. Um, none of them, I don't think, had really done much stunt work before. Michael Beck, maybe, you know, he trained yeah. over in London. Um, so he probably did all that sword fighting stage work and all. Um, but Baxi did a great job getting these guys to um, learn how to fight, take a punch, react, all of that stuff. And um, Walter had a blast just putting us through our paces. Yeah. Well, I like that story you tell me the first time. Um, just correct me if I'm wrong. He either said, are you tough or can you fight? And you're like, of course I am. Of course I'm tough. And then I guess he, he basically saw he was Sorry about I'll, I'll let you through. He, he was uh, forgiving that you weren't as prepared as he was hoping you were going to be. Yeah, when someone asks you how tough you are, yeah. you don't say, I don't know, you know, which I think is what I said. Yeah, that's what it was, yeah. Yeah, you don't say, I don't know how tough I am. You say, you say I'm tough enough or I'm tougher than you. Yeah. But anyway, I ended up telling him that I... I led the Ivy League in fouls, and uh, and he appreciated that, and so he ended up um, giving me a job. Well, at that time too, you were still in production, and you were getting about three hours of sleep. And there's somebody that you call the pocket protector guy, and that sort of put an end to double duty. Yeah, yeah. What happened was when they made me a baseball fury, I still had my production job. I still had locations to find. 
So I did my first night as a fury, got that makeup off, went home, crashed for a couple hours, showed up at the production office, put in a full day running all around Brooklyn and wherever. And I was getting exhausted and I was really worried. I mean, this double dipping is tough. You know, if you're not getting enough sleep and I'm suddenly I'm going to be in a baseball bat with the fight with a star of the movie. So I'm thinking, geez, you know, I got to tell John Stark, the production manager, I can't do both jobs. But it was done for me because a SAG rep, Screen Actors Guild rep, showed up on the set and I saw him eyeballing me like, what are you up to? And I asked Jerry Hewitt, one of the other Furies, who is this guy? He looked like a real nerd. He had one of those pocket protectors and wore a tie. And um, and Jerry told me, oh, that's a SAG rep. He takes care of us, you know, make sure we're getting paid right. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, next thing I know, he and the first assistant director are approaching me. I'm in makeup now as a Fury. And they said, we have a problem. You can't be double dipping like this. The Screen Actors Guild does not approve people from production taking away jobs from their actors. Mm -hmm. So you got to make a decision. And I took all of two seconds to decide to remain a baseball fury and to lose the production work. I think you made the right decision. <laughs> yeah, well, not not to not to mention, Rich, that I was getting paid 50 bucks a day for an 18 hour day as a production assistant or location scout. And the pay as a stuntman was over 300 a day plus adjustments plus overtime. So pretty easy decision to make. Well, I like what they said because you asked the question, well, what about Walter Hill? And like, don't worry about Walter. You're not doing it. I'll take care of it. So they did take, they take care of their actors or the, the SAG it sounds like. Which yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a good first assistant director takes really good pay, good care of their directors. Yeah. Um, you know, and you keep the director from having to deal with all this trivial BS because it's tough being a director. It's such a complicated job. You got people coming at you from every angle, every imaginable angle, and then more. Yeah. And then you have weather problems and traffic problems and noise problems and actors start messing up. And, you know, it's just a, a tough job. So a first AD will take really good care protecting the director from stuff that he doesn't have to know about. I want to talk about directing styles because I read an autobiography by William Friedkin, and I know you worked with him on Blue Chips, and he seems yeah. like a joy to work with. He seems one one tough director, and one of the stories you brought up, he talks about where it's a, it was a real priest. It was the end of The Exorcist, and it's when Karis gets thrown out or jumps out the window, and the guy is trying to give him the last rites, and he wasn't getting the shot right, and he said, do you trust me? Do you love me? He goes, of course I do. He slapped him across the face as hard as he could, and then you get the shot where he's going like this. And, he, and there's another times where I guess Ellen Burson's back was hurting so bad. And she goes, can you please don't pull me as hard? Because that's when she's being thrown across the room. So Walter said, give me that. He yanked her as hard as he could. The reason I'm bringing this up is I wanted to see what was Walter's style compared to working with William Friedkin. Yeah, Walter Hill had a real laid back style of directing, which I grew to appreciate. Um, there were some actors who wanted more from him, but essentially his attitude towards the whole process was, 
you're hired for a reason. I cast you for a reason because you're a competent actor. You're a good actor. You're going to be great in this role. Learn your lines, learn your marks, learn the choreography and do your job. Mm-hmm. And I'm not here to guide you through every little step and hold your hand every which way to get you through this process. And I dug that because I've worked with directors who gets they get so in the weeds with their actors that their actors get all flustered and messed up. You got to let people do what they do. Oh, no, I haven't said I that. that. Yeah. I mean, like you said, they're, they're, they're supposedly, you know what you're doing. So he trusts you. And I love the fact that he gives you some free reign to feel, feel it out and do what you have to do. Uh, I interviewed somebody that worked with Clint Eastwood. He said, it's basically just one take. All right, let's move on. I'm not going to waste any more time. But then you have other directors like Kubrick who would do a hundred takes for The Shining or, uh, or some of his other movies, A Clockwork Orange. So with, with Walter, you say he's really laid back. Would he be, I know you didn't just do one take because I've read the stories, but how about approximately, would, how long would it take him to get the right shot? Three to four takes. Yeah, that's not bad at all. That's really he was, he was really efficient. Yeah, I love that. And Clint Eastwood is a master of this. You know, he just moves really fast. One take, two takes maybe. Yeah. And we'll move on to the next setup. Walter, he liked to do three or four. He might make a couple little adjustments, um, but he liked to keep things moving too. So in in a movie like The Warriors, I mean, we did not have $50 million Mm -hmm. to blow on that thing. It was a tight schedule. Everything was squeezing it out, squeezing it through. So you had to keep moving. And uh, Walter kept us moving. That's a perfect segue because you brought this up in the book. And I want to ask you why having less money to spend making a movie helped me to a better movie. Yeah, absolutely. You know, everyone keeps saying, yeah, if they had more money, it could have been a better movie. But it's not necessarily true. When you're on a tight budget, a tight schedule, it, it makes you even more creative in ways. For instance, um, Andy Laszlo was director of photography, just a brilliant old school guy, wonderful man real, real good craftsman and artist. And he realized that a wet street gives a real glistening, sharp, kind of fantastic look. And he talked to Walter about it because I guess there was a little downpour early one night and they realized, oh, we're shooting a wet street here. (laughs) And from then on, they decided let's wet the streets down as if there has been a rainstorm and we'll register it in the movie. And then from the rest of the movie, for the rest of that night, there will be wet glistening streets. And it's a signature look of the warriors. And it cost them maybe a couple hundred bucks a night, you know, pull out some fire hose and tie into a hydrant, wet down the streets, go to work. Yeah. Well, you brought this up as well as when I was speaking with David Harris and Thomas G. Waits, there was some problems with some of the real gangs. So what did Walter do to appease them? Well, this is a case where everyone in production protected Walter from having to deal with crap like that. Mm-hmm. So the production team between the ADs and production manager and Frank Marshall, Larry Gordon, they made all sorts of side deals with some gangs. Um, paid some off, offered 
chances for them to be in the movie here and there, but not wearing their colors, which would have been a disaster. Yeah. And um, and then, you know, working locations, you have problems like all the yahoos who come out just to watch mm. and to cause problems and yell and scream. Guys would come out with boom boxes, blasting them out when you, you know, you're trying to record sound. So suddenly they'd be at demanding money you know, to turn off their boom box. And sometimes you just pay just to keep things moving. Well, didn't you also have, I'm not sure what scene this is now, I can't remember, was you called him them Popeye and Buddy from the French Connection. They were two detectives there to keep peace. Oh yeah, um, we had on set security, there would always be a couple of cops in uniform, but there were two off-duty New York City police guys detectives mm -hmm. and they would they were like you know popeye doyle from yeah. the french connection you know they i don't remember them wearing hats but they'd wear these long black raincoats and they were big beefy irish guys as i remember and when there was a problem with somebody acting out they would these two guys i've saw this more than once would really quietly walk up to the guy, kind of smother him, and walk him off the set. And sometimes the guy would slink away, and sometimes he would be left on the pavement nursing his wounds because they would give him a couple shots, usually to the stomach, knock the wind out of him, knock some sense into him. And these guys were tough. I mean, tough, tough. And it was kind of cool to see him in action. But uh, I don't know that, you know, that you see that stuff so much anymore. Yeah, I don't think so. Not, I think not like back in the 1970s. Yeah. I think there'd be too many lawsuits and too many people complaining. Now everybody has a cell phone, so they'd be filming it and saying, oh my God, this is police brutality. It's, just, it's definitely a different time. Did they do you have any retribution from the gangs when they did that to the people and then they came back with other people trying to beat them up? And was there... Was it a big deal or just they're like, all right, we're out of here. We're, we'll leave you alone. Yeah, it was pretty much guys getting left alone and backing yeah. away. And, and the gangs themselves, I think they were appeased enough one way or another that they didn't cause too much problems. Yeah. It was more like the lone wolf guys who would just show up and yeah. just be just be assholes yeah. um, that these detectives would take care of. Were a lot of the gang members that Walter put in the movie, was that during the conclave scene? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and, and, and that's where they said to these guys, look, you know, we'll give you a job. We'll dress you up in some different gang stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can have some fun with this. Just don't cause us any problems. And and it worked out. And I guess there was some stuff out on the boardwalk with a a gang from Coney Island that got a little hairy. I wasn't privy to it all. So you just have to take the word of these other guys. Yeah. And I had a, a two-part discussion with Tom Shewaite. So I know the story of what happened to him. He was young, he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. And he was telling me that the reason he thought he had a completely different vision of the movie than Walter. He thought it was gonna be more of a love story. So the question I have for you regarding Thomas G. Waits, he was the one that was thrown thrown into the subway and was killed off because Walter didn't feel like working with him. But the question I have for you is, what was the original story? Because he was the main character at first. He was the main actor. And then they switched over to Swan. What was the story originally? 
Yeah, well, the story originally is that Fox is, he's kind of the brains of the outfit, mm -hmm. even though he's not the leader. Yeah. He ends up with Mercy. And oh. they were going to play out that love story. And I think that's what Tom was looking for is, hey, where are my love scenes? You know, I, you know, I thought this was going to be a really sweet movie, you know, a little bit more West Side Story. Um, and it didn't quite turn out that way. And and Tom's a great guy. He's a very yeah. talented actor, very talented and very talented director as well. Mm -hmm. And he teaches acting and um, he's still very much in the game. Um, and when he goes to these fan conventions, he'll have words of wisdom for all the young actors out there saying, don't piss off the director. You know, just understand that you might not see the whole picture the way the director does. Mm -hmm. And push back, sure. But at the end of the day, it's a director's medium. It's a director's movie. And let him do his thing and try to make him happy. And Tom does a nice job of saying, mea culpa, I messed up. I wish I didn't. And even Walter actually says he, he messed up. Walter has said he wished that he had had it in him to work it out with Tom Waits. Yeah. Other than to have him thrown under a subway train. Well, I can say after doing the interview with him, I actually became friends with him. I hung out with him. I went to his acting school. I went to a couple of his classes. He wants me to do Richard III on stage. I said, sign me up. I can't wait. So yeah, we, he had, he and I had long conversations about that. And uh, I agree with you. He's such a great, and it, but everything worked out for him. It fell right in place because right after he got fired from the Warriors, he got signed up for Injustice for All. So it worked out for him. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 All right. So th this book is filled with so many great stories. I want to go back to the Furies for a minute because okay. before the baseball Fury scene was to be filmed, you had something else to take care of that included a Gulf and Western credit card, bolt cutters, and two words that will live with you forever Acme Rents. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here we go. So. The, my first night as a as the Purple Fury, we ran and ran and ran some more. Got the makeup off, went back to the production office. I still work in locations. They sent me out to Coney Island to get a whole bunch of film equipment, stuff like uh, uh, all these extension cords and light stands and apple boxes and God knows what else. It was locked up in this locker underneath the boardwalk and the production manager said, just go out there. I got you a teamster and a truck downstairs, go out there and get our stuff back. And I said, well, how do I do that? And he just said, figure it out. Remember that? Figure it out. So we get out there driving out. Am I trying to figure out how to do this? No, I'm thinking about how I'm going to look in makeup and a wig. Right? So, we get out there, find this locker under the boardwalk. There's this giant Yale padlock on it. And I'm staring at this thing going, oh my God, you know, how do I do this? We don't have the key to this lock. They changed the lock. So the teamster says, what a guy could do here is go rent a pair of bolt cutters. So I kind of like that, what a guy could do here. So we get back in the truck, drive around Brooklyn, find a hardware store. There's this big hulking Italian gangster type behind the counter, kind of like Luke, 
Luca Brazzi, right, from The Godfather. Yes. And I say, hey, I need uh, I need to rent a pair of your biggest bolt cutters. And he says to me, you got a credit card? And I say, do I have a credit card? I got the Gulf and Western credit card. All right. Pull this thing out. Give him the card. He gives me the bolt cutters. We go back to the locker. I'm cutting open this Yale lock and just snap that thing like a popsicle stick, right? Inside on the handle of the bolt cutters, it says Acme Rents, which is the name of the hardware store. I put two and two together and say, oh my God, did I just rent these bolt cutters from Luca Brazzi <laughs> in the hardware store? And is he right now explaining to his cousin Vinny that yeah, he rented the bolt cutters to this jerk off from that movie? Um, never moved so fast in my life. We unloaded that locker into the truck, threw the bolt cutters in, jumped in, getting on the parkway, belt parkway, I guess. Mm -hmm. And the Teamster says, hey, that was a close one. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And, he, and uh, I say, what about the credit card? He's like, so what? He's got a credit card. What's he going to do with it? And, and I'm like, ah, maybe move to Italy. I don't know. But anyway, we kept the ball cutters, never got the card back. You never heard from Vinny. <laughs> never heard. I'm glad to hear that. I want to go back to the uh, car explosion because there was one thing I did want to mention was uh, who is Grandpa DeMarco and what happened with him? Oh, God. You know, once the street was secured, you got to work the neighbors. You got to keep reassuring them. Everything is going to be cool. So there is an Italian family, just a few houses down from apartments down from where we were going to blow up the car. <clears throat> and they, they were sitting out on their stoop the night of the explosion. And I went down there to let them know everything was going to be cool. The explosion was so far away. I was assured that everything was totally safe. They could actually sit out on their stoop and watch this thing blow up. Right. Um, so it's middle of the night. They're out there. The orphans are out there. The warriors are there with Deborah Van Valkenburg playing Mercy and the special effects guy have the car all wired up and they call roll camera and action and boom, that thing blows up. The charge was probably four or five times bigger than it should have been. Mm. I mean, that explosion, if you, if you see there's an orphan flying out of frame and that was a stuntman, Conrad Sheehan, who was um, the roller skating punk in the yeah. subway bathroom fight. And he literally, that wasn't a, you know, a, a jerk table gag. That was just him flying out of frame. It was so explosive. Wow. I look up, there's a big piece of the car on the roof, right on top of us, the DeMarco family. And we're like five buildings down the block and i'm like oh geez and, it, and uh the location manager comes out and i'm like oh what are we going to do about that and he goes don't let anyone know we'll take care of it in the morning so anyway i headed home they took care of it in the morning and grandpa demarco never knew better 
I love it. <laughs> Although we did scare the crap out of all of them. And boy, his daughter was pissed. She was yelling at me. How dare you do this? Look at my daddy. Look at my kids are all crying. Uh, it was pretty wild. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, just like your book, I want to go back and forth a little bit because I want to go back to the Furies now because there's that, first of all, I, I met the whole cast, including James Lamar. He's such a great actor, like all of them are. Uh, but you said that he got a little intense. Was he more of a method actor? Because in that in that uh, movie, he's just so arrogant. Yeah, I'm sick of these wimps. Fuck you. And there's a on and on. I love it. I love his character, Ajax. So was he, did, was he a more of a method actor? Was he like that throughout the whole filming? Or was it or like when he got off, the, when the filming stopped, when he's like, hey, how's it going, Rob? Oh, no, no, man. He, he was in character. He was a method actor through and through. So after every take, during rehearsals, whatever, he just had that sneer on his face. And he was dangerous. He had this feeling like loose cannon, man. So all of us kind of steered clear of him. <laughs> and it worked out really nicely for his character. Yeah. And Walter told me later that he didn't realize how much people would be attracted to Ajax, to that character. He thought everyone's going to hate this guy. And that's one reason he had him killed off the way he did, you know, by, um, or not killed off, but arrested at the park bench scene. And, and Walter has said he would have done it differently if he understood how popular that character was going to end up being in the movie. I saw the movie when I was 11 years old. And even back then I said, Ajax is my favorite character. I just love his attitude throughout the whole movie. Hey, you tired? I'm sick of running from these wimps. And there was one line, probably my favorite line in the movie, in that scene anyway, that he ad-libbed. It's almost like we're going to need a bigger boat in Jaws. And that was, uh, I'm going to take that bat and shove it up your ass and turn you into a popsicle. That was all ad-libbed by James? That's right. Yeah. And, and it was quite a night, you know, to, to watch this stuff in motion mm -hmm. when... You're gathered around or all the baseball furies, the four warriors in that scene, cameras all over the place. And they start working through, how's this scene gonna go when Ajax confronts the yellow fury who is played by Jerry Hewitt, who is a brilliant guy. Mm -hmm. And to witness it was really something else where Jerry said, well, what if I do something like this with the bat? And he does this whole whirly yeah. thing. And Walter's like, yeah, I like that. And then Remar goes, well, what if I do this? And he goes, Walter's like, yeah, that'll work too. And then they start building it, you know, beat by beat. And then Remar came up with that line, which is just an instant classic. I love it. And that's the way they shot it. And it worked out beautifully. I mean, it's memorable. Yeah, most definitely. Let's talk about your one-on-one -on -one fight with Swan. Oh, boy. <laughs> yes. Anyway. This was the last fight of the entire sequence, and we shot it last. And by now, Michael Beck had been in, I think, three different bat fights where he's taken care of the Furies. This one here, that one there. He's been doing all this running. And he was pretty beat up and tired. And um, Baxley gave us the whole breakdown, beat by beat, how it was going to go. And Michael and I rehearsed it and rehearsed it. It's time to shoot it. And um, actually, we all the cameras were set. You know, it's really bright, glaring light um, there in the you know, big pools of light in, this, in the dark park. And you're in that. And sort of like 
don't be a deer in the headlights. You know, you got to stay focused and sharp. And and I was going, okay, here we go. And uh, we were all set. Michael was set. And I I heard Walter say action. And suddenly Swan is coming at me, swinging that bat. And we go through the whole sequence, block, swing, block, hit, blah, blah, blah. And then I hit the tree behind him when he ducks underneath it. And then he hits me three times in the ribs. Boom, 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 like that. And I fall backwards in the grass. And I'm out. I'm down. I hear Walter yell, cut. And I get up and I say to Michael, wow, that was fast. We were both exhilarated. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, that was fast. And I'm like, that was really fast. And he goes, yeah, yeah. And we were exhilarated thinking we nailed it, man. One take, that's all we needed. My ribs, I couldn't even feel them, even though they're burning, right? And we look over to Walter like, dude, we nailed it. And Walter looks at us and he just was like, do it again. <laughs> like oh man okay and by now michael's worn out my ribs are suddenly killing me <laughs> craig baxley the stunt coordinator comes up to me and he goes hey rob something you should know every time you get hit you get a 50 dollars stunt adjustment and that gets added on to your overtime and onto your base play pay and it all adds up and i'm like oh man my ribs feel great let's go again so we had to do it again and Walter didn't give us any direction. So we figured, okay, well, we'll do it again harder and faster, right? We did it again, halfway through the sequence, I'm supposed to swing at Swan's midsection and he jumps back. The next, next swing I go at his head and he ducks under it. Well, Michael messed up the choreography. I'm swinging for his stomach he ducks right into my swing. Oh. I am just able to check my swing. I missed his head by maybe, maybe a half an inch. <clears throat> and I was thinking, God, this could be the end of the movie right here. Yeah. Um, anyway, we both dropped our bats and backed away. And Walter was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and and an AD gals, cut, cut. And Baxley runs up like, what's going on? And Michael and I looked at each other like, only we really knew how close we came to like changing a whole sequence of, of the movie. Um, we, we recovered, gathered ourselves. Walter said, let's do it again, no mess ups. So we went through the sequence maybe two more times. We got it right each time. Walter was happy and we were moving on. Right. Well, speaking of people getting hurt, let's talk about Mercy, a.k.a. Deborah Van Valkenburg, and all the fun she had making this movie. Deborah is just one of the classiest, most talented people I've ever met. I love that woman. And you got to understand, I mean, we were young. And to, for her, she was essentially, aside from the Lizzie's and their one isolated thing there, Deborah was in that movie and a whole bunch of it with all that testosterone just zooming around her and she handled it beautifully. Just She's wonderful, did a great job. Out of all of us stunt people and all the warriors, Deborah Van Valkenburg probably got, got beaten up more than anybody because um, 
when she was running on the subway platform, the scene where Walter decided to kill off the character Fox, he had a cameraman doubling Thomas Waits because Craig Baxley couldn't find a, the right size or look of a stuntman. And they were running on camera down that platform and this cameraman fell. They were holding hands and he drags her down. She falls onto the subway platform and breaks her wrist. That's why you see Deborah mm -hmm. in a jacket for the rest of the movie because trying to hide her cast. Wow. So anyway, she had a broken wrist for the whole half the movie that she was in. And then um, in one of the later scenes, Michael Beck, when they were running again, and he does, he was holding his bat at that point, mm -hmm. and he swings it back and clips her right above the eye and opens yeah. up a big cut over her eye. So she got all these stitches there. So yeah, she took a beating. Sounds that way. Well, I want to talk about the, and we're almost at, at the hour mark. Oh, I want to talk about the, the uh, iconic bathroom brawl scene because you became a punk. It was also Craig Baxley. It was his cousin, Gary. He dubbed uh, Vermin being thrown into the mirror. So I want to talk about that scene, how that came about, because originally you were the location scout looking for the, the right bathroom, and that really didn't go smoothly, of course. <laughs> Yeah, that one really ticked me off because I looked and looked for that bathroom. I was in every bureau, every borough except Staten Island, maybe, looking for a bathroom all over the place. And finally found one on the west side of Manhattan in a high school. It was big. It had the urinals, the stalls, the mirrors. It was perfect. I shot the Polaroids, found Walter on set in some subway and showed him, Walter, I nailed it. I finally got this bathroom. He looked at, at the Polaroid and said, nah, I don't like it. Oh. And I said, why, man, it's perfect. And he said, I do not like it. And he turned away from me. I'm like, ooh, you know, when a director turns away from you, you know you're done, right? So the location guy came up to me and said, look, don't take it personally. Walter's in a big fight with Paramount. He wants them to build him this bathroom. Mm. And that's what they ended up doing. They spent the extra money and they went to that classic old soundstage out in Queens, Astoria Studio, and they built the bathroom. And that's where we did the uh, the punk sprawl. And how did you, you, Craig, and his cousin Gary become the punks? They didn't, why, why would they, I mean, because of all the stunts that are involved in the scene? Yeah, I think Baxley was feeling like he was young enough that um, he wanted to do the some of the fighting himself. Mm -hmm. And he had his cousin in Hollywood who was going to come out with another stuntman, Tommy Huff, maybe. Um, and then there are a few of us Furies who Walter decided we could make good punks as well because no one would recognize us because of the makeup and wigs. Um, Jerry Hewitt, um, Eddie Earl Hatch, Leon Delaney. We were all baseball furies who became punks. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so the next thing you know, uh, I got a call from Baxley after the fury scenes. And and he said, hey, Walter wants you to be a punk. So I'm like, cool by me, man. And uh, that's how I got into that gang. Right. 
Well, let's talk about vermin being thrown into the mirror in the mini tramp. Yeah, well, if you read the script, it's like, you know, I don't know what they called me, the big punk or whatever, picks up vermin and throws them into the mirrors, right? And that's pretty much one line in the script. And so I looked at that and I, I looked at uh, Terry Mykos. I'm like, well, okay, well, let's see how this goes. So if you if you go back and look at that scene, it's chaotic. There are people swinging and coming at each other left, right, and center. It's, and in this sequence, I go up behind Vermin, grab his shoulder, spin him around, punch him in the stomach, grab him, lift him up, and start to throw him into the mirrors. And that's where we're going to cut, because you don't want one of your lead warrior actors getting thrown into the mirrors, may, maybe busting his head open and not being able to finish the movie. Better to do put a stuntman in there. So the idea was, as I lifted him and start to throw him, they're going to cut, and then they're going to replace Terry Mykos with Gary Baxley, um, dressed in the exact same way with the wig on, I guess. And I'm going to pick up Baxley and throw him into the mirrors. So we rehearse the part with Vermin. And when I go to pick Terry up, I go, oh my God, this guy's a load. <laughs> I mean, he was strong, muscled, maybe 165, 170 pounds. Yeah. Well, I could get him off the ground, okay, right? But the idea of throwing him, like, how's this gonna work? And then we then I have to do it with Gary Baxley, who's even bigger. And Craig Baxley, stunt coordinator, comes up to me in front of everybody including Walter, they're like, oh man, I thought you were strong. And he's like feeling my bicep, like how strong are you? You know, and I'm like, oh, I'm strong enough. It is like asking someone to throw a couch through a window, you know, <laughs> like it ain't happening. And then I see Walter laughing, Baxley's laughing. I realize these guys are screwing with me. And Baxley says, bring in the mini tramps. So they brought in one of those little mini tramps that people bounce around on. And the way we did it is I'm standing right next to the tramp. Tramp's just out of frame at my feet. Gary Baxley bounces into onto the tramp and I grab him as he's bouncing onto it. I grab him through the crotch and over the shoulder and then I throw him mm -hmm. and it worked. Yeah. I think we did maybe two takes and Baxley hit those mirrors and that's real stuff. The mirrors weren't real, but you know, they're candy glass, so they shatter. But the, the uh, ceramic sinks were real and he had to fall onto them then onto the floor and um, he made it work. It looks realistic. And it was a lot of fun for me to finally, after getting beat up so much, to finally be able to take it out of one of the warriors. Oh yeah, now, it looked like a lot of fun and it was very effective. These are the days before CGI. So when you see these things happening, that's really happening to the person. He's really being thrown into the mirror, hitting the sink. It's not like they're gonna, all right, we'll just get a green screen and put that in later. No, that's really happening. No, it's a real deal. You know what, um, throughout the book, it's something, do you know who Joe Spinell is? Yeah, that's real familiar. He played in Maniac, he was in Rocky. He was more of a character actor, but the reason I'm bringing this up was because it sounds like you had a really good relationship with Walter Hill and he just asked you to hang out. And with Joe Spinell, 
he, Francis Ford Coppola loved him so much that he didn't even have him in The Godfather. He just paid him to be on the set because he loved his personality. It sounds like that you and Walter Hill had somewhat of a similar relationship where he's like, yeah, come on, stay here. And then he was, you know, giving you different jobs all the time. Sounds like you and he, you and he had a great relationship working. Yeah, no, it, it was really cool. He was good to me, Walter. Um, you know, he, he didn't know me from Adam when the movie started, but he got to know me really well. And he knew that um, he had heard that I'd been doing some writing. I'd written a couple of screenplays coming off my first movie. Mm -hmm. And so he asked me about them and he said, look, if you're serious about being a screenwriter, you got to move to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the first thing I did as soon as the movie wrapped, you know, I, I moved out of my crappy Second Avenue apartment and I moved to the land of milk and honey. Right. I moved to Hollywood and was doing some screenwriting. Baxley said, hey, you know, I have more stunt work for you. And I'm like, man, I don't know. Um, I really want to get a writing career going here. And Walter knew I was struggling a bit the way screenwriters do. And he actually put me in the movie Southern Comfort where I running around the swamps in East Texas for a couple of weeks. Uh, and that was sweet. And then later on, a few years later, I started selling screenplays and Walter hired me to write a screenplay. He had an original idea. He wanted, we originally were going to co-write it. Um, it was a really cool idea about a skip tracer, a detective in Texas who's looking after a girl who disappeared. You know, just one of those classic clean, lean and mean stories. Um, and I ended up writing a really credible screenplay for him. He went off on another movie. So I wrote it myself. And he kind of basically just shrugged when I handed it into him. And he said, yeah, you know, let me show it to Powers Booth, who was just had been in Southern Comfort. And Powers loved it, wanted to play the lead. But Walter never really got behind it which really ticked me off. To this day, I, I hold a bit of a grudge because it's one of my better works and it never got made. Are you still trying to push it? Are you still giving it to studios? Yeah, you know, it's on the back burner, like a lot of things, but I could spruce it up, yeah. change the page count. Walter has given me free reign with it. I want to give it back to Walter. I, I'm hoping to see him in the next couple of weeks. Oh, good. Hey, remember that old screenplay? You paid me 50 grand to write. You should make it your next movie, you know, because he's still directing. Yeah, well, you talked a lot about the different screenplays that you wrote. Some of them were 360, Take Me to the River, Sink or Swim, Take Me to Belize, Please, Dead by Morning. So you, you've done a lot of screenwriting. And another one I want to talk about really quickly was, I think it was entitled End of the Rope about a stuntman. Yeah, yeah. That's the first screenplay I ever wrote. And it came out of us another movie I worked as a PA on called The Next Man with Sean Connery. And I just did a couple of days on this, but we blew up a car in that movie. This is before The Warriors. Mm -hmm. And that was a hairy stunt because they had those nitrogen jacks where the cable goes around the back and around a girdle of the stuntman. And when the explosion goes off in front of him, the cable yanks him back out of frame as if the explosion blew him up. Um, 
And it was one of those scenes, it was a bunch of angry, pissed off Arabs in front of an embassy. We were up on 91st Street on the east side, I think. And uh, it was this limo that was gonna get blown up. And it was the end of the day, The we were losing light. Everyone's in this frantic pace. And suddenly this stuntman, there are three stuntmen are all gonna get blown up and he's running his cable right by me. They stuck me in the middle of the crowd to do crowd control, mm -hmm. pretend I was an Arab. Um, so I'm like getting everyone primed to do that, everyone around me. The stuntman runs up to me and says, listen, I'm going to be coming flying right past you when that explosion goes off. So knock me out of the air, right? So I don't hit the building back there. And I'm like, uh, yeah, okay. So anyway, they, they, they call for, they call action. Like, how does it work? They call background action first. So all us Arab extras start yelling and screaming and acting like we're gonna attack the limo. And suddenly they call action. The limo blows up. I see this stuntman flying straight at me at about a 9,000 miles an hour, like right at me. And I ducked, I hit the ground. He goes flying overhead. Boom, you hear, Cut, smoke everywhere, people groaning. It scared the crap out of all of us. I look back, I see this stuntman crumpled, crumpled up against the building right behind me. I'm feeling like, oh my God, I failed this guy. And so I go up to him and I say, you okay, you okay? And he looks up at me and he goes, what happened to you? And I said, I ducked. And he said, smart move. <laughs> and, um why he ever asked me to knock him out of the air i don't know but that's the kind of shit if people try to persuade you to do stuff like fall downstairs oh yeah no way say no just like, don't get involved in riots and say no to any kind of crazy stunt work yeah well i love the fact that it seems like i mean besides what you end of the rope and then hooper and most recently, Quentin Tarantino is showing some respect to the stunt stunt women, stunt men with uh, Death Proof. Now he's making Zoe Bell a star who doubled for uh, Uma Thurman and Kill Bill. So I like the fact that you know stunt men. People don't realize all the. I mean, maybe not as much now as back when you were doing it in the '70s and '80s. All the hard work and all the things that they're doing, putting their life on the line, almost getting themselves killed every scene they do, every take they do. So I like the fact that like you know they're finally getting the respect that you deserve. It's yeah, it's really cool. And what's interesting is that there's been a move of stuntman to stuntman to direct. Yes. Craig Baxley um, was one of the first. There was a guy named Hal Needham who started directing. He, he, he and Burt Reynolds, Reynolds, right? What's that? Wasn't he stunt? Uh, wasn't he Burt Reynolds' stuntman? Yeah, yeah. He, he did. He did all of Burt's work, and then he started directing. Um, and then Baxley did the same thing, ended up directing Stone Cold and may have directed one of the Predator movies or he did stunt work in that at least. Yeah, he started I, in the book. I just um, listened to the book Driven. He was talking about that because that's when John Claude Van Damme was supposed to be in it and he wasn't. So he, he definitely did. I think it was more stunt work with that one, but he he directed, as you mentioned, Stone Cold. Was it Brian Bosworth? There was a, yeah, but and then just like you said with uh, the family thing, his father was directing, he was directing, now his son's directing, his cousin. So, yeah, so you yeah. Uh, you you act, write screenplays, um, 
have you directed as well yeah i've i've directed um never a full motion picture i never got that shot just like all the screenplays i got paid to write none of them got made so it's been tremendously frustrating yeah. um i got to direct a 30-minute movie for showtime which turned out okay not as well as i hoped but it's one of those things and um done a lot of directing in terms of commercials and fell into a lot of sports work. So I do a lot of second unit directing. Um, started that with White Men Can't Jump and moved on to a bunch of other movies and TV shows and commercials. And now I'm doing a lot of directing for video games. Um, I just last week actually directed for Madden 25, the football game for EA Sports. It was one of those things where they needed a whole bunch of voiceover and sound. So I hired a bunch of real deal football players. I mean, like real deal football players, three, 325 pounds, six foot seven, guys like that. Put them in pads and helmets, brought them out on a high school football field and had a bunch of sound guys and mixer and mic guys, boom guys and recorded all sorts of noise of them grunting, groaning, smashing into each other, hitting the turf, um, and just running them through their paces. Tremendous amount of fun. Um, we only had a couple of minor injuries, a broken thumb, a dislocated shoulder, nothing too serious. And the EA takes those, all that noise, and they layer it into the games to make it sound realistic, mm -hmm. because it is realistic. You know, so that's one of the latest side hustles I have. Wow, yeah, you, you do it all. Now, I want to get back to screenwriting because in the book you mentioned something. I think it would be a great movie. I would love to see this. And if you ever do it at Chiller, I would love to be an extra in this. You know, since I've been to the Tom Waits uh, acting school, I'm ready for my close-up. But you mentioned, I want to talk about Warlord. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how they should make uh, – uh, a sequel or a remake of the Warriors and everyone else saying, no, they should never make it. They'll just mess it up and this and that. And, and so I've been thinking, I'm in the camp of you're only going to mess it up. Just the way they kind of messed up White Men Can't Jump recently by yes. doing that. Remake. So why bother? But then there's a huge fan base out there. People love the actors from the Warriors, Michael Beck and Thomas and all those guys. I mean, David Harris are great guys, Terry. Um, so I came up with this idea. I started doing these fan conventions with these guys. And I came up with this idea. What if during a fan convention, when all the Warriors are in a room with Deborah Van Valkenburg, a couple of the Lizzie's, Apache, who is a, an orphan. Mm -hmm. um, we're all in there signing photographs and having a good time meeting a bunch of fans. And some real deal gangsters decide they're going to pull off a heist because there's a lot of cash that flows through these fan conventions, like mm -hmm. a lot of cash. So these guys, these bad, real bad guys, have snuck some guns into the convention center and they try to pull off this heist where they hold everyone hostage, steal all the cash and make a getaway. And the warriors being right there and being who they are, are like, fuck this. I love it. And they end up fighting back, including Deborah, including some of the Lizzie's and Apache. And 
they end up saving the day and each other by beating the crap out of these bad guys in all these different ways and um, saving all the money and no one gets killed. And I, I wrote it. It's a screenplay out there. I haven't put it out there yet, but I've shown it to some of the warriors and they're all like, you know, this is really cool, but I don't know. Can you, we really pull this off? So I'm going to show it to a few people and over the next few months and uh, try to get it made. And I'm, I'm hoping that Michael and Deborah and the rest of the warriors, when, when we make them an offer and say, Hey, look, this is a great way to get the gang together, make a feature film. We got a built-in audience. You guys are in pretty good shape. You can, you you don't have to do your own stunts. I mean, some of us were in our seventies, right? Um, but we'll have a lot of fun. We'll make a little money, and we'll keep the warriors alive without screwing up the original. So I'm hoping to get it made. I think that's a great idea. I mean, look at the Expendables. You have Stallone. Exactly. So I mean, yeah. they're still doing it, and it's still I still enjoy watching those movies. I would love to see that, and I hope it does get made. And it's funny because I go to Chiller every every April and every October, and. So many, what you're mentioning really isn't too far-fetched. I mean, over the years, there's been so many bomb threats. The last, uh, me last year, the year before, somebody was stabbed because somebody was trying to steal his son's cell phone. So there is a, there is some violence involved at these conventions. And people watching this, it's a great convention. Don't let what I'm saying deter you. Check it out. But there's so many great celebrities, and it's very random what happens. But I think that would be a great story. And I'm sure they would let you, uh, like, do you know who Lloyd Kaufman is? He yeah, Troma films. Yeah, okay. He does. Um, he did a Toxic Avenger. He, he's an independent director, very, very low budget. But he was. I met him at Chiller a couple of years ago, and he was making a movie at the same time. It's like it's oh yeah, I some some guy at the convention wants me to be in his movie. And I'm in the hotel. I'm doing this, and he was filming scenes out in the lobby. So it could definitely be done. And I think people who grew up watching the warriors would love it and then you, you would bring a whole new generation of fans to the Warriors. so it's a win-win situation yeah that's how i feel about it and because it's all done in one location it's pretty cheap to make yeah so um so yeah i'm hoping to get it made we'll see we'll see stay tuned well speaking of what's going on next with the warriors let's talk about lynn manuel miranda who did hamilton yeah well he's gonna make a musical version, a Broadway musical of the Warriors. And I think this guy is tremendously talented. Mm -hmm. And if anyone can pull this off, it's Lin-Manuel Miranda. So God bless him. I hope he does it. It's not a movie, so it's not a, a remake. Um, and I think it'll keep the Warriors alive. And who knows, maybe it'll be a big hit. I hope so. I definitely want to check it out when it does come out. And I'm not sure if I read it from you or somewhere else, but I think he's basing it more on the book than the movie. Yeah, I read that too. And I think he might get himself in some trouble there mm -hmm. because anyone who's gone back and read Saul Urich's original novel, mm -hmm. The Warriors, realized just how different it is from the movie. It's considerably different. It's more violent. It's more complicated. Uh, it's not nearly as satisfying a story and if you go back to that original novel to make a Broadway musical, you may lose a lot of the crowd who knows the movie. Because let's face it, 
people know the warriors through the movie, not through the novel. Oh yeah, exactly. I have never read the novel. I never even heard, I saw the movie first and I never went back to read it, but I definitely agree with you. And I've read the same thing, what you said about the novel, that it's completely different. And I think I saw on your Facebook, didn't you send Lin-Manuel Miranda your book just so you could take a look at it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want him to take a look at it because he's a hero of mine. Yeah. And I want him to uh, help me out with another project or two because he's got a lot of clout these days. Oh, yeah. I have, not, I have not heard back from him, but I'll press him a bit. All right. Well, anyone out there who knows him, tell him to call me. <laughs> Please, if you're watching this, hook Rob up because I think you make a great collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> well, in your opinion, and mine as well, how is the Warriors a shining example of how we can all just get along? Yeah, this is something I talk about in my book, because this society is so fractured right now, and it's a damn shame. Um, this world is spinning out of control. There are a lot of issues that have to be dealt with that are being ignored. It's a lot of inequality. There's a lot of racial tension going on unnecessarily. There's a lot of tension about sexuality and who's what and where. And the warriors, we collectively are a shining example of how people can get along racially, cross all sorts of boundaries that we can understand each other. We can all show each other some more kindness in this crazy life we're all living. And I talk about it in the book. I don't get preachy. You read the book, Rich. I'm not preachy about it. But I couldn't resist just saying, listen, it's time we all pull together and look at us. Come to a convention and meet us and see the Lizzie's there and see how everybody's getting along. Black, white, Puerto Rican, all mixed up. And it's easy. It's easy to like your fellow brother or sister. Yeah. And it's harder to do it the other way. And why bother? I love that. And you are so true. And as you said, the book is not preachy at all. And I agree with that a thousand percent. I'm going to give you an example of that. I interviewed Victoria Price, who is Vincent Price's daughter. And at first she said, I was so afraid to go to these conventions. I didn't know what it would be like. She goes, Everybody was so friendly, so welcoming. Everybody was so, wanted to talk about my dad and just talk to me in general. She was, I love it. And like you said, everybody, you know, Puerto Rican, black, white, gay, straight, everybody's there just for the same reason, just to have a good time, meet the people they grew up watching. And the celebrities such as you are so generous with their time and they're always willing to take a picture and just talk about stories like we're talking about right now. And I love it. I go there. Every single, I go twice a year, every year. I've gone for a year. I'm, I started doing Fangoria back in 89, 90. And I've been going ever since. I just wow. love conventions, yeah. Wow. I, I've met so many interesting and great people. And it's so great with the people like you. And as I mentioned, I interviewed Apache and uh, Thomas G. Waits. And I got a chance to meet all these people. And and I love watching them as growing up and like and how great they are. And they, whenever somebody says, you know, don't meet the people you grew up, you know, idolizing or whatever. But I have never really met, for the most part, anybody that at these conventions that gave me an attitude, and they were always grateful that they I was still there to say, "Oh my God, thank you very much for this." So yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, at, at first I thought these are this is kind of cheesy. You know, they're not superstars. These people, yeah. you know, they're they're making a few bucks here, and 
I wasn't sure what they would be like, but I went to my first one was a chiller, maybe four years ago, three, four yeah. years ago. And I realized these fans really care and the actors really care. Mm -hmm. And it's meaningful in ways that I kind of poo-pooed at first. Like, and, eh, you know, that's kind of cool. Like the guy who played the kid in Lassie, yeah. right? John Provost. He's a great guy. That TV show meant a lot to people. So for them to come out and meet the guy who played the kid, it's meaningful. And for people to come out and meet the Warriors and meet the Lizzies, it's a lot of fun. We just, we laugh, we tell real stories. You know, we don't have to make crap up because there are lots of stories to be told. We have a great time. Like you said, everyone gets along and you get in and out and you just have one of those days, you know, you can wander around. Um, and so it's a tremendous amount of fun. Yeah. Well, what I love, what I'm gonna tell you next was two of my favorite movies growing up. One, The Warriors, and two was Jesus, Jesus Christ Superstar. And I got a chance, one, Coney Island with the cast, to watch the movie with the cast. That was great. And then I got a chance to go to New York City, watch Jesus Christ Superstar with Ted Neely, Yvonne Elliman, Norman Jewison in the movie theater. It was great. And I got a chance to interview Ted Neely. So I, that's what one of the best things I love about doing the show is this. Get a chance to sit down, talk to people that like you that have done so much in the industry and I, I had no idea all the behind the scenes stuff and it brings a whole new light to the movie whenever I see it like and when I, you know what I love is uh you mentioned Apache and I said I became friends with him after I after I interviewed him for four hours <laughs> and yeah. uh, he has he only had one line in the movie we're gonna rain on you warriors we talked before he has so many interesting and I saw today on Facebook you like get pen to paper it doesn't take long. Write, write your autobiography, write your memoir. And I agree with you. It's like he should because he has so many interesting stories. So I'm going to push him as well. It's like, come on, Rob and I want you to write that memoir because you have so many, yeah. so many great stories. They, they, his daughter calls him the Puerto Rican Forrest Gump because he's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, you know, Apache is one of the great guys. He's a wonderful actor, spent years and years doing social work in New York City mm -hmm. and the tough stuff, you know, Hell's Kitchen. South Bronx. I mean, he was there. Yeah. And he's got great stories to tell. He's a highly intelligent man and just a lot of fun. Just a beautiful guy. I wrote him a good part in the movie The Warlords. So he can essentially play himself. And um, you know, it's one of the great things. And it's you know, it's what I try to do in the book is give the reader an idea of what it's really like behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. You know, you see what you see on the screen. Yeah, but to get it there, that's a whole different ball of wax, yeah. and all the crazy stuff that goes on to get those few frames of film up on the screen. That's what I'm all about with this book. Yeah. You know, prepping to do the bat fights, prepping to do the punk fight, everything Walter was going through, fights with the studio, what's going on between the cast. You know, just what it's like. I'm trying to put the reader into the middle of the action. And I'm getting real nice feedback on that. Oh yeah, no, as I told you before, I love the book because it's such a nice, easy read where it just flows. And you can, you can sit there every time, like, oh, I gotta go to work tomorrow, but I wanna read the rest of it. I gotta find out what's gonna happen next and just have like so many interesting stories. I didn't even get into stories of like AJ Bakunas, 
Sonny Landham. You have so many interesting stories for people who are watching this right now. After you're done watching this, go online, go to Amazon. It's called, uh, what's the name of the book? It's called Purple Fury, Rumbling with the Warriors. Purple Fury, Rumbling with the Warriors. Can you, you see it? it? You yeah. got to get the glare out of it. Yeah, that's no, perfect. Right there. Purple yeah, Fury. And, and you, can go to, you can go to purplefury.net. Okay. which is my website and you can buy it there as well and cut Amazon out of the picture. Yep. But it's and also, it, it's on Amazon. It's on in Barnes and Noble online. And um, it's short and fast and funny. So I'm encouraging people, even if you haven't bought a book, you can like, you know, shock your partner. Suddenly, you know, she'll find you reading an actual goddamn book and you'll, you'll, Believe me, you might get some action that night. So. All right. <laughs> well, also, I encourage people to buy it from your website because I bought it from you and I got a signed copy and I really do appreciate that. So cut out Amazon, go right to you. Yeah, okay. Purplefury.net. All right. So we talked about different things like Warlord, talked about the book that just came out. What's next, <clears throat> next in it for Rob Ryder? Well, you know, I've got a few things in the works. I've been working, I do a lot of work, uh, you know, in the basketball world. And I've been working on a, a live stage show, which is kind of like the Harlem Globetrotters, mm -hmm. but with lots of music and dance, <clears throat> cheerleaders and mascots. That's called Hoop DeVille. So I'm working on that, um, putting some money together and uh, attracting some real interest in Hollywood and on Broadway <clears throat> for that show. It's an arena show, like the Globetrotters. And then I've got a couple of screenplays, new screenplays that I'm going out with. And one is The Warlords, which is, you know, the old gang, the warriors, together in a convention, trying to save the day. I love so it. So I'm pushing this stuff. I may have another book in me. I'm still, like, mopping the blood off of my keyboard from yeah. writing this one. Um, as I warn Apache... It seems like it'll be fun when you start and halfway through, you're like, God, what was I thinking? Um, and I got out in like 155 pages. This is a fast read. Yeah. Um, people who write longer books, I don't know what they're thinking, but um, I may write another book. I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm having a lot of fun going to some conventions um, this spring and summer and um, hope to see people showing up at conventions. So look for us. You know, I tag along behind the Warriors. So when they get invited, I try to get myself invited. Well, it's funny because David Harris messages me every once in a while. I know the the promoter in Connecticut. It's called Connecticut Horror Fest, and he's like, "Rich, can you get me on the show?" Can you? I was like, "I will do my best." And I love the every every October. He's like, "Rich." Please get me on. I said, I would love to have you here, but it's, but it's not up to me. I, I will put it through. So I'm going to do the same for you. So I would love to see you if you're willing to come to Connecticut and uh, be a part of that. Because I know David definitely wants to be here. He will play, for people who know, he played Coach East in the Warriors, David Harrison. You can go back to the, some of the older episodes and see my interview with him. He was another great guy, another fun guest. So David's great. Yeah. Before we go, is there anything that you want to talk about that I didn't go over? Here's if there's a message in this book or just for me personally, take care of yourselves. Mm -hmm. You don't live forever. And your last few decades of life, 
you don't want to be on a dialysis machine. You don't want to have some crappy cancer pop up out of nowhere. Not that you can avoid all this stuff, but you got a shot at trying to improve your health, no matter how old or young you are. Take care of yourself. Secondly, take care of each other. Show some kindness to each other, whether it's a total stranger, your wife, your husband, your kids, go that extra mile. It'll make a difference in this crazy world. That is, can't think of a better way to end the show. Thank you very much, Rob, for being on the show. You are a great guest. I love the book. I recommend everybody go out and buy it immediately. And I would love to have you back on the show sometime when you with your next project. Okay, Rich. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. You. That right. wraps up the latest episode of The Claws Corner. A special thanks goes out to author, screenwriter, technical consultant, production assistant, film actor, stuntman, basketball consultant, and website columnist, Rob Ryder, for taking time out of this extremely busy schedule to be a guest on my show. I also need to thank editor extraordinaire John Bristol of Elmwood Productions for always doing a superb job editing this show each and every week and making it available all on YouTube. I am also extremely grateful to Joseph Timothy Quirk and Rob Bull for all they do to make my show available on several Connecticut radio stations, as well as Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, Audible, and iHeartRadio. Thank you both very, very much. And lastly, but definitely not least, I need to thank you, the viewer, for always tuning in. Enjoy your day, everyone. Diaphragm again? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ha! We caught one. They're supposed to be weird. Oh yeah, no. If you say so. I've always wanted to be in a movie. Waiting around for all the, waiting around for all the